Welcome back to the Hemingway List podcast, the podcast of excellence that you love. You love it here. And so do I. We're talking about Of Human Bondage, Chapter 25. Can we get another recap? Sorry, my attention span. Dot, dot, dot. My attention span. I, I don't hate this book. I'm enjoying it. But I do find myself blanking out for big chunks of text. So, uh, Swims of the Mumfishy came in with a recap. We start off with a description of Monsieur Ducroze, Philip's French teacher. He lives in a garret. His clothes are shabby, not clean. He is taciturn and he does not, uh, sorry, and he does the bare minimum required. Apparently, Ducroze was quite the revolutionary, but does not look or act like one to Philip. There is a lot of exposition about how Ducroze may have behaved in his youth as a revolutionary. Ducroze won't talk about it even when Philip asks. Note, the fact that Ducroze won't talk about it leads me to believe he was indeed in the thick of it. My husband, who was in a war and in the thick of it, doesn't either. Ducroze is ill. Philip generously gives him lesson money and tells him, wait, Ducroze is ill. Philip generously gives him less than money and tells him to stay home until he's better. Philip thinks Ducroze should have shown gratitude for the generosity. After all, you gave him money for lessons Ducroze won't be teaching. When Ducroze comes back, he informs Philip he would have starved if not for the money. Philip sort of realises what Ducroze is enduring. Excellent, says Trepper. I nominate Swimstead the Mama Fishy as our official recapper. Um, I accidentally read ahead. Your services will be needed. Oh, well, very, very well done. Swims to the Mumfishy. You've been elected. <laughs> I'm not sure how happy you'll be about that. But uh, hey, if you ever feel like doing a recap, it's always welcome. Um, what was I going to say? I had a comment. Oh, I was going to ask, I wonder what it is. Do we know what Ducross is suffering from? His illness, or is it a mystery? Acoustic Eel says, I'm glad you enjoyed my Wagner recap. I'm very flattered that you read the long version. Luckily, this chapter fell on Labor Day weekend instead of on a day when I had class, so I could sit around and type up a big thing like that. Since you all enjoyed it, I'll drop in another paragraph that I had cut for brevity. Wagner had a giant opera house, especially constructed in the town of Bayreuth, pronounced by riot, to by riot. By, by wrote, mm. to accommodate the performance of the ring, since he felt no existing opera house could handle it. The king of Bavaria at the time, Ludwig II, was prone to spending the royal money on extravagant architectural marvels like Neuschwanstein Castle. That being said, he required some persuading in to fund Wagner's opera house after a crowdfunding campaign failed. Philip's new home in Heidelberg is closer to France, near Strasbourg, where Julian got all those love letters from the Russian prince, while Bayreuth is closer to Chechnya, so they are not nearby. The Opera House survived bombing in World War II and stands to this day, and Bayreuth is still home to the world's most significant festival of Wagner's music. As an INTP, I get very excited when people are interested in the thing I'm interested in, because most of the time people are very much not interested. Well, you are uh, among good company here. Edit one more Wagner anecdote because I can't help myself. He once wrote a harp part 
and the harpist looked at it and said, this is unplayable. And Wagner, Wagner, sorry, basically said, eh, you can see what I'm going for. Arrange it yourself however you like so it's playable for you. You don't usually hear the harp anyway over the sound of everything else. Huh. Um, that, uh, that's really funny. That's almost like a Larry David sort of thing. He writes a part for the harp. Harpist says this is unplayable and he just kind of goes, eh, you know what I'm going for. <laughs> Make it up yourself. It's a very Larry David moment. Acoustic Eel says, Ander, it seems we have just swapped weather. Here in the Midwest, our temperature dropped from 80s yesterday to 50s today. That's a drop from almost 30 down to 10 uh, in Celsius. Damn. Yeah, we went from sort of 10-ish up to about sort of 22-ish, 20, yeah. Anything in the 20s is a, is a sunny day, you know. It's not stifling hot, um, but it's nice. Broke out my jeans and hoodie collection. Fall is coming, and I honestly, I couldn't be more excited. Winter is my favorite season. Edited to add the conversion to, from freedom units to uh, imperial. <laughs> um, broke out my jeans and hoodie collection full. Winter's your favorite season. I mean, I, I like winter. I like being cozy. Don't get me wrong. But after a long winter, God, it's nice to see the sun. I think the way seasons work is pretty good. By the time... You know, you're sick of one. By the time one comes around, you're sick of the current one. But I've been long sick of winter, you know. It's been, it's it's dragged on. It feels like it started a bloody year ago. I'm Norwegian says, 1,100 calories is incredibly impressive in one session. And uh, thank you very much. I was sweating profusely. Uh, I just trained with weight, so my cardio is still terrible. It's funny how you can train to look athletic and strong and still struggle to run for five minutes straight. That Wagner thing was from Curb Your Enthusiasm. I love that episode. Yeah, I thought it was Curb. Also, I didn't know you lived in Tokyo. That's really cool. Yes, I did. Um, only not for long, for about uh, seven or eight months, I think it was. Uh, but a really cool time of my life. It was an interesting place to be. Um... Edit, just got home and read the chapter. The French teacher seems to be broken down and disillusioned revolutionary. Now, nothing more than a poor tutor. Oh, and The Boys is a great show. Uh, yeah, The Boys is good. The Boys is very good. I like The Boys more than I like... Um, what's that other one that's kind of the Netflix equivalent at the moment? Umbrella Academy. I like the Umbrella Academy too, but I think The Boys I prefer. Um... Uh, um, 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 yeah, cool. I think, oh, that's it. That's the conversation. <laughs> for a minute, I thought I'd lost my place in the conversation, but nope, I've finished reading all the conversation for the day. So, uh, let's read a chapter, shall we? It's a bit of a longie by the looks of things. That's all right. Let's get into it. Chapter XXVI. 26? Damn. Philip had spent three months in Heidelberg when one morning the Frau Professor told him that an Englishman named Hayward was coming to stay in the house and the same evening at supper he saw a new face. For some days the family had lived in a state of excitement, first as a result of heaven knows what scheming by dint of humble prayers and veiled threats the parents, 
of the young Englishman to whom Fräulein Thekla was engaged had invited her to visit them in England, and she had set off with an album of watercolours to show how accomplished she was and a bundle of letters to prove how deeply the young man had compromised himself. A week later, Fräulein Hedwig, with radiant smiles, announced that the lieutenant of her affections was coming to Heidelberg with his father and mother. Exhausted by the importunity of their son and touched by the dowry which Fräulein Hedwig's father offered, the lieutenant's parents had consented to pass through Heidelberg to make the young woman's acquaintance. The interview was satisfactory, and Fräulein Hedwig had the satisfaction of showing her lover in the Stadtgarten to the whole of Frau Professor Erlin's household. The silent old ladies who sat at the top of the table near the Frau Professor were in a flutter, and when Fräulein Hedwig said she was to go home at once for the formal engagement to take place, the Frau Professor, regardless of expense, said she would give a Maybal. Professor Erlin prided himself on his skill in preparing this mild intoxicant, and after supper the large bowl of hock and soda with scented herbs floating in it and wild strawberries was placed with solemnity on the round table in the drawing room. Fräulein Anna teased Philip about the departure of his lady love, and he felt very uncomfortable and rather melancholy. Fräulein Hedwig sang several songs, Fräulein Anna played with the wedding march, and the professor sang Die Wacht um Rhin. Amid all this jollification, jollification, wow, what a word, amid all this jollification, Philip paid little attention to the new arrival. They had sat opposite one another at supper, but Philip was chattering busily with Fräulein Hedwig, and the stranger, knowing no German, had eaten his food in silence. Philip, observing that he wore a pale blue tie, had on that account taken a sudden dislike to him. He was a man of twenty-six, very fair, with long wavy hair through which he passed his hand frequently with a careless gesture. His eyes were large and blue, but the blue was very pale, and they looked rather tired already. He was clean-shaven, and his mouth, notwithstanding its thin lips, was well-shaped. Fräulein Anna took an interest in physiognomy, and she made Philip notice afterwards how finely shaped was his skull, and how weak was the lower part of his face. The head, she remarked, was the head of a thinker, but the jaw lacked character. Fräulein Anna foredoomed to a spinster's life, with her high cheekbones and large misshapen nose, laid great stress upon character. While they talked of him, he stood a little apart from the others, watching the noisy party with a good-humoured, but faintly supercilious expression. He was tall and slim. He held himself with a deliberate grace. Weeks, one of the... Weeks, one of the American students, seeing him alone went up and began to talk to him. The pair were oddly contrasted, the American, very neat in his black coat and pepper and salt trousers, thin and dried up with something of ecclesiastical unction already in his manner, and the Englishman in his loose tweed suit, large-limbed and slow of gesture. Philip did not speak to the newcomer till next day. They found themselves alone on the balcony of the drawing-room before dinner. Haywood addressed him. You're English, aren't you? Yes. Is the food always as bad as it was last night? It's always about the same. Beastly, isn't it? Beastly. Philip had found nothing wrong with the food at all, and in fact had eaten it in large quantities, 
with with appetite and enjoyment, but he did not want to show himself a person of so little discrimination as to think a dinner good, which another thought execrable. Execrable. Fräulein Thekla's visit to England made it necessary for her sister to do more in the house, and she could not often spare the time for long walks, and Fräulein Cassili, uh, Cassili? I can't remember how to say it. We went through this last, well, two chapters ago. Fräulein Cassili, with her long plait of fair hair and her little snub-nosed face, had a late shown had of late shown a certain disinclination for society. Fräulein Hedwig was gone, and Weeks, the American who generally accompanied them on their rambles, had set out for a tour of South Germany. Philip was left a good deal to himself. Howard sought his acquaintance, but Philip had an unfortunate trait, from shyness, or from some atavistic inheritance of the cave-dweller. He always disliked people on first acquaintance, and it was not till he became used to them that he got over his first impression. It made him difficult to access. He received Hayward's advances very shyly, and when Hayward asked him one day to go for a walk, he accepted only because he could not think of a civil excuse. He made his usual apology, angry with himself for the flushing cheeks he could not control, and trying to carry it off with a laugh. I'm afraid I can't walk very fast. Good heavens, I don't walk for a wager. I prefer to stroll. Don't you remember the chapter in Marius where Patter talks of the gentle exercise of exercise of walking as the best incentive to conversation? Philip was a good listener, though he often thought of clever things today to say. It was seldom till after the opportunity to say them had passed. But Hayward was communicative. Anyone more experienced than Philip might have thought he liked to hear himself talk. His supercilious attitude impressed Philip. He could not help admiring, and yet being a wed by a man who faintly despised so many things which Philip had looked upon as almost scared. He cast down the fetish of exercise, damning the, damning with the contemptuous word pot hunters, all those who devoted themselves to its various forms, and Philip did not realise he was merely putting up in its stead the other fetish of culture. They wandered along, sorry, they wandered up to the castle and sat on the terrace that overlooked the town. It nestled in a valley along the pleasant Neckar with a comfortable friendliness. The smoke from the chimneys hung over it, a pale blue haze, and the tall roofs, the spires of the churches, gave it a pleasantly medieval air. There was a homeliness in it which warmed the heart, Hayward talked of Richard Feverell and Madame Bovary, of Verlaine, Dante, and Matthew Arnold. In those days, Fitzgerald's translation of Omar Khayyam was known only to the elect, and Hayward repeated it to Philip. He was very fond of reciting poetry, his own and that of others, which he did in a monotonous sing-song. By the time they reached home, Philip's distrust of Hayward was changed to enthusiastic admiration. They made a practice of walking together every afternoon, and Philip learned presently something of Hayward's circumstances. He was the son of a country judge, on whose death some time before he had inherited three hundred a year. His record at Charterhouse was so brilliant that when he went to Cambridge, the master of Trinity Hall went out of his way to express his satisfaction that he was going to that college 
he prepared himself for a distinguished career. He moved in the most intellectual circles. He read Browning with enthusiasm and turned up his well-shaped nose at Tennyson. He knew all the details of Shelley's treatment of Harriet. He dabbled in the history of art. On the walls of his rooms were reproductions of pictures by G.F. Watts, Burne Jones and Botticelli. And he wrote, not without distinction, verses of a pessimistic character. His friends told one another that he was a man of excellent gifts and he listened to them willingly when they prophesied his future eminence. In course of time he became an authority on art and literature. He came under the influence of Newman's Apologia, the picturesqueness of the Roman Catholic faith, appealed to his aesthetic sensibility. And it was only the fear of his father's wrath, a plain, blunt man, of narrow ideas who read Macaulay, which prevented him from going over. When he only got a past degree, his friends were astonished, but he shrugged his shoulders and delicately insinuated that he was not the dupe of examiners. He made one feel that a first class was ever so slightly vulgar. He described one of the Vivas with tolerant humour. Some fellow in an outrageous collar was asking him questions in logic. It was infinitely tedious, and suddenly he noticed that he wore elastic-sided boots. It was grotesque and ridiculous. So he withdrew his mind and thought of the gothic beauty of the chapel at King's, but he had spent some delightful days at Cambridge. He had given better dinners than anyone he knew, and the conversation in his rooms had been often memorable. He quoted to Philip the exquisite epigram. They told me, Heraclitus, they told me you were dead. And now, when he related again the picturesque little anecdote about the examiner and his boots, he laughed. Of course it was folly, he said, but it was a folly in which there was something fine. Philip, with a little thrill, thought it magnificent. Then Hayward went to London to read for the bar. He had charming rooms in Clement's Inn with panelled walls, and he tried to make them look like his old rooms at the hall. He had ambitions that were vaguely political, he described himself as a Whig, and he was put up for a club which was of liberal but gentlemanly flavour. His idea was to practice at the bar. He chose the chancery beside as less brutal and get a seat for some pleasant constituency as soon as the various promises made him were carried out. Meanwhile, he went a great deal to the opera and made acquaintance with a small number of charming people who admired the things that he admired. He joined a dining club which, of which the motto was the whole, the good, and the beautiful. He formed a platonic friendship with a lady some years older than himself who lived in Kensington Square and nearly every afternoon he drank tea with her by the light of shaded candles and talked of George Meredith and Walter Pater. It was notorious that any fool could pass the examinations of the Bar Council, and he persuaded his studies in a dilatory fashion. When he was ploughed for his final, he looked upon it as a personal affront. At the same time, the lady in Kensington Square told him that her husband was coming home from India on leave, and was a man, though worthy in every way, of a commonplace mind who would not understand a young man's frequent visits. Hayward felt that life was full of ugliness. 
His soul revolted from the thought of affronting again the cynicism of examiners, and he saw something rather splendid in kicking away the ball which lay at his feet. He was also a good deal in debt. It was difficult to live in London like a gentleman on three hundred a year, and his heart yearned for the Venice and Florence which John Ruskin had so magically described. He felt that he was unsuited to the vulgar bustle of the bar, for he had discovered that it was not sufficient to put your name on a door to get briefs, and modern politics seemed to lack nobility. He felt himself a poet. He disposed of his rooms in Clement's Inn and went to Italy. He had spent a winter in Florence and a winter in Rome, and now was passing his second summer abroad in Germany, so that he might read Goethe in the original. Haywood had one gift, which was very precious. He had a real feeling for literature, and he could impart his own passion with an admirable fluency. He could throw himself into sympathy with a writer and see all that was best in him, and then he could talk about him with understanding. Philip had read a great deal, but he had read without, discriminating, without discrimination everything that he happened to come across, and it was very good for him now to meet someone who could guide his taste. He borrowed books from the small lending library which the town possessed and began reading all the wonderful things that Howard spoke of. He did not read always with enjoyment, but invariably with perseverance. He was eager for self-improvement. He felt himself very ignorant and very humble. By the end of August, when Weeks returned from South Germany, Philip was completely under Hayward's influence. Hayward did not like Weeks. He deplored the American's black coat and pepper and salt trousers and spoke with a scornful shrug of his New England conscience. Philip listened complacently to the abuse of a man who had gone out of his way to be kind to him, but when Weeks in his turn made disagreeable remarks about Hayward, he lost his temper. Your new friend looks like a poet, said Weeks with a thin smile on his careworn bitter mouth. He is a poet. Did he tell you so? In America we should call him a pretty fair specimen of a waster. Well, we're not in America, said Philip, frigidly. How old is he? Twenty-five? And he does nothing but stay in pensions and write poetry. You don't know him, said Philip hotly. Oh, yes, I do. I've met a hundred and forty-seven of him. Weeks' eyes twinkled, but Philip, who did not understand American humor, pursed his lips and looked severe. Weeks, to Philip, seemed a man of middle age, but he was in point of fact little more than thirty. He had a long, thin body and a scholar's stoop. His head was large and ugly. He had pale, scanty hair and an earthy skin. His thin mouth and thin, long nose and the great protuberance of his frontal bones gave him an uncouth look. He was cold and precise in his manner, a bloodless man without passion, but he had a curious vein of frivolity which disconcerted the serious-minded among whom his instincts naturally threw him. He was studying theology in Heidelberg, but the other theological students of his own nationality looked upon him with suspicion. He was very unorthodox, which frightened them, and his freakish humour excited their disapproval. "'How can you have known a hundred and forty-seven of him?' asked Philip seriously. "'I've met him in the Latin Quarter in Paris. I've met him in the pensions in Berlin and Munich. He lives in small hotels in Perugia and Assisi.' He stands by the dozen before the Botticelli's in Florence, and he sits on all the benches of the Sistine Chapel in Rome. 
In Italy, he drinks a little too much wine. In Germany, he drinks a great deal too much beer. He always admires the right thing, whatever the right thing is. And in and one of these days, he's going to write a great work. Think of it. There are 147 great works reposing in the bosoms of 147 great men. And the tragic thing is that not one of those 147 great works will ever be written. And yet the world goes on. Weeks spoke seriously, but his grey eyes twinkled a little at the end of his long speech, and Philip flushed when he saw that the American was making fun of him. "'You do talk rot,' he said crossly. "'All right, there we go, another chapter down. I like Weeks. I like him. He's got... he's got a bit of... uh... I don't know, what's he got? A bit of bite.' Got a bit of bite. Got a bit of mongrel about him. All right. Have your say over at the subreddit. Thanks for listening. I'll see you tomorrow.